In the late 1720s, Cornelius Lau, head of the Lau family and an affluent merchant, settled his family and business in Raritan Landing. Cornelius Lau is a, uh, um, a merchant, and Raritan Landing's position on the Raritan River was because of its um, uh, the, the trading activity that was happening there. So you have you know, farm produce that's being grown in the surrounding mm-hmm. region that's being brought down to the docks at Raritan Landing and being shipped out. Mm-hmm. And then there's mass-produced uh, goods that are being imported into the region. You know, and Lao is one of, um, you know, one of the central figures in that, uh, that trade activity. That's Mark Nonestide, director of the History and Historic Preservation Division, part of the Arts Institute of Middlesex County. He's also the official historian of Middlesex County. In this episode, he'll tell us about Cornelius Lau, his family, and how his family was split during the Revolution. Later in this episode, you'll hear from archaeologists during the dig that occurred on Lau's property 245 years after his death. Lau's family line can be traced back to his ancestor, Peter Cornelius Lau, who emigrated from the Netherlands. They first settled in Kingston, part of New Netherland, in present-day New York State. After the Dutch surrendered New Netherland to the English crown, Lau descendants resettled in other places, in Newark and other parts of New Jersey and also in New York City. Cornelius was born there in 1700 and learned how to be a merchant from his father. They come out to Raritan Landing in the 1730s. I forget the exact year. You know, Lau had become a a merchant. Uh, You know, his father was a merchant uh, in uh, in New York. Uh, His name is also Cornelius Lau. Uh, So Cornelius Mm -hmm. Lau Jr. is the one that owns the house. Um, He's a merchant in in Newark. You know, he gets married in 1729, and probably thereabouts afterwards is moving out to the uh, to the community. So, I mean, he's coming with, uh, you know, Newark is also an area where, you know, one of these trading communities as well. You know, by the 1730s, when he comes out to Raritan Landing, he's already an established merchant. They they, they have all the connections uh, to make. Um, you know, to make a go of it as a as a business, and you know, and our, and our trading with in connections in significant areas. I mean, New York City, Newark, you know, the the, the Raritan Valley area. Raritan Landing was a perfect town to further Lau's trade ambition, but the town did not have certain community institutions. There's no church there, and ultimately, too, there's there doesn't appear to be any form of of uh, of government institutions uh, like a town hall, oh. and then also uh, later uh, banks. Um, there's churches mm-hmm. nearby, um, but not yeah. you know not in the landing proper. Uh, even things like a school. There, there's a school nearby too, but not uh, the, the entire community is is almost hyper focused on on trade. And just as everything in the town revolved around trade the social life of the Lau family was encompassed by their trade business. As a successful merchant, Lau and his family inhabited the wealthy sphere of Raritan Landing with the other merchant families. And Lau was creative in maintaining his standing with other important figures in Raritan Landing, as shown in a story about how the Lau children were baptized. Lau is baptizing his children, and this shows up in the the family Bible records, in in different areas. Uh, 
fact, I think at one point, like one one of his children's baptized in someone's barn. The, the thought is that uh, he's solidifying business connections uh, in some yeah. way. Uh, you know, much like marriage would do uh, in, in that time. Um, mm. You know, it's it's solidifying positions in life, solidifying networks of of friends and business associates. He seems to have some of that going on with, uh, you know, with his children and where, where they're baptized. That mm-hmm. was part of what, you know, what made him successful was the ability to, you know, be in contact with the right people to help distribute things um, mm-hmm. as part of his uh, merchant activities. It seemed that through Cornelius's success as a merchant, the Lau family was able to enjoy all the benefits of being in the wealthy merchant class of the landing from the best education for the Lao children to a beautiful family home designed in the most popular style. The Laos lived comfortably. But one of the ways that the Lao family gained this comfort and position was by using the free labor of enslaved people. So there's a, there's a runaway slave advertisement that talks a bit. Uh, we also, in the estate papers, um, mm-hmm. were able to learn of others mm-hmm. and sort of draw some conf- conclusions on where they may have originated from in Africa, Portuguese or Spanish territories in Africa where uh, some of these slaves may have come from. They were property. You know, they had a value. When he died, they were, you know, they were sold as part of the settling of the estate. Um, Mm. So, I mean, yes, I mean, there's, you know, profit that the families uh, uh, making off of, uh, of owning and, and, and selling them. The runaway slave advertisement that historian Mark Nonestide mentions is an advertisement for Cato, an enslaved man who ran away from the Laos. Unfortunately, other than the brief description of Cato in the advertisement, we do not know much about Cato or what happened to him after he ran away. What historians have been able to learn about the Laos is limited to the records left behind by historical actors with the means and the privilege to document their lives, which often exclude enslaved people. But the runaway slave advertisement further reveals the lives of the enslaved people owned by the Lao family, and it reminds us that many enslaved people like Cato bravely resisted slavery. From the wealth Cornelius Lau amassed from his trade, properties, and other deals, he built the Lau's family house on the mountain. Prior to construction of the Lau house, the family lived along the banks of the Raritan River, in what is now Johnson Park in Piscataway. But his home was flooded in 1738. So Cornelius Lau bought a piece of property on the hillside overlooking the landing and built his home in the fashionable style of the time. The Lau house was truly a symbol of the family's wealth and influence. It is one of the finest examples in the region of Georgian architecture. And, and it is, it's a, um, you know, for high style buildings like the Lao House, it's a, uh, you know, it, it's sort of the predominant uh, 18th century um, style. It, it's symmetrical. So like with the Lao House, there is a central hall with flanking rooms. You know, when you look at it, it, it has that symmetry of um mm-hmm. you know it's not un- it's not unbalanced uh, but yeah it's just it's an outstanding survivor from you know from that time um and uh, um again speaks to the wealth uh, i mean it's a style that uh builders are familiar with you know there's a lot of these sort of vernacular traditional building methods that are 
familiar to various cultural groups. And that's probably what, you know, most of the other structures at Raritan Landing, they were, you know, they were done without the aid of, of, you know, of, of, of architects, planned architects. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they, they, you know, they were building techniques that were um, familiar to, you know, English carpenters or Dutch, uh, Dutch carpenters. Um, um, and, and, and not, you know, and not to the same scale, uh, as the, uh, as the Lao house, but yeah, the, the Lao house is the, is the, you know, the one end of the spectrum and, and an extreme one at that, you know, most everybody else, that, that, you know, never lived in a, a home of that size. In this impressive home, Cornelius Lau and his wife raised 11 children, but not all of them lived to adulthood. Unfortunately, there are more records associated with the sons rather than the daughters. Another advantage of living in a town focused on worldwide trade, Lau and his fellow merchants had access to not only products, but various kinds of information. And it was a world trade network at the time, and that's what the archaeology at Raritan Landing has shown. Manufactured goods that came into this region from England, from Europe, I mean, you have uh, uh, wine bottles from England and uh, from mm. Europe, uh, Chinese porcelain are being purchased by uh, the, the same farmers that are shipping produce out of the region. Um, mm. So, you know, it's a very cosmopolitan uh, area. Things coming from around the world, you get, you know, you, you get other things that, that are, you know, don't always necessarily, necessarily survive in the archaeological record. I mean, that you know, there's news that's right, like that's mm. coming in because through all these trade networks. Um, you know, things like fashion and, and printed material. And For all of the community institutions that Raritan Landing did not have, the taverns acted as places for the community to come together. In this setting, people shared news from all over the world with each other. Taverns were sort of notorious for, you know, these, mm. these regions where people are traveling through and there's, you know, there's an exchange of information um, uh, taking place where communities are coming together, you know, in structures like that to eat and drink and, uh, uh, you know, and, and gossip and talk. Um, so, uh, you know, these were all the, you know, all the ingredients in Raritan Landing. As news of the impending revolution made its way through points of trade like Raritan Landing and beyond, everyone in the colonies chose a side based on their loyalties and beliefs. The Lao family is a representation of how people were divided during the Revolutionary War and what the consequences were for choosing to side with the British after the end of the conflict. Yeah, so, you know, one thing that happens is that the, the Revolutionary War really splits the family. There, you know, there's members of the family that are on both sides of the fence. You have Nicholas, who's an ardent patriot, uh, Isaac, uh, who uh, is not, he flees to England and remains there after the war, um, loses his holdings uh, here in the colonies. His properties are confiscated. The Lau House is such a valuable piece of history because it was one of the few buildings to survive this period of occupation and destruction. We don't know exactly why the house wasn't burnt or destroyed by the British. It is possible that Cornelius Lau was a loyalist, like most merchants, during the Revolution. But because of Cornelius's death, there isn't much evidence. Cor Cornelius dies very early in the war. He, he probably has leanings 
to, to loyalty to England. Um, I mean, most mm. you know, many merchants did. You know, they're part of these larger trade networks that that's where their money's coming from. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think had he not died so early in the war, you know, and survived through it, that, you know, his property, you know, he would have probably ended up coming across as a, uh, you know, a loyalist and, yeah. uh, you know, would have lost much of the property. You know, he kind of dies, well, he dies before the occupation of the, of the landing, um, you know, it's it's hard to say. We we just don't, you know, we don't have. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's put it this way: that the house isn't totally destroyed. You know, the the, yeah. the the British don't go in there and they don't burn it down to the ground like they did with other people's mm-hmm. homes. Um, so you know, maybe on some level, it's, uh, um, you know, it does speak to you know his loyalty. Though the Lau House is left largely intact, the estate. All of Cornelius Lau's property and business deals were in disarray when the Revolutionary War ended. When Lau died, his son Nicholas was the sole heir and made executor of the estate, even though Isaac was the eldest brother. This was a break from tradition. Isaac was a loyalist, and his property was confiscated. Once Nicholas became executor, it's possible he tried to prevent his father's estate from also being confiscated. We know this because it's in the estate records that uh, he went to visit, um, seek legal advice from a from an A. Hamilton, which is Alexander Hamilton. Uh, the, oh. the two of them were were friends and lived uh, near one another in New York City. Alexander Hamilton, at the time that Nicholas was settle, settling the state, was known for defending the properties of, of loyalists. Uh, oh. You know, this was after uh, this was after the war and. There was a um, sort of these thoughts of, you know, the war's over with and the need to kind of come back together and rebuild the mm. economy and, mm. um, uh, you know, kind of put the, the destruction of the war behind and to mm. move forward, uh, you know, required uh, society at some level coming together. Um, and uh, Hamilton, for a period in his legal practice in New York City, you know, was known again for uh, d- defending the properties of, of loyalists, uh, you know, whose properties were being confiscated. You know, it's interesting that Nicholas Lau's son, Cornelius Lau's son, is like reaching out to him to seek legal advice. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, which to me suggests again that there's this air of concern of, of, of Lau being, yeah, a loyalist that's that's hanging over all of this of his estate. Um, and Nicholas is figuring out how to navigate through all of it. It's clouded, you know, it's murky. Even though Nicholas Lau supported independence, he went to these lengths to protect those in the family who had loyalist ties, such as Isaac Lau. The most Nicholas could do for Isaac was to write a letter to George Washington for Isaac's release when he was arrested in 1775 under suspicion of being unfriendly to American interests and holding correspondence with the enemy. Later in 1779, after Isaac's property was confiscated and he was exiled to Britain, Nicholas could only help his older brother by selling what little belongings he still possessed so Isaac had the means to support himself in exile. The story of Nicholas and Isaac Lau, the patriot and loyalist sons, paints a picture of a family torn apart by the war. In light of this, Nicholas Lau's efforts to save his father's estate seem like another attempt to salvage what remained of his family. Despite these hardships and being one of the few Laos, Nicholas led a successful life after the war. 
Alongside handling the Lau's estate, Nicholas also took up more ventures by being a banker and property owner. He was a director of the Bank of New York from 1784 to 1792, and later a director of a branch of the Bank of the United States. His property was built on the vast land that he acquired in upstate New York, including a hotel which he built in 1803 and was the largest hotel in the country at the time, and several properties in New York City that are now in the McDougal Sullivan Gardens Historic District. Nicholas Lau, his wife, and their two sons were buried together in the Lau Vault in Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. The Lau House, one of the few remnants of Raritan Landing that survived the destruction of the Revolutionary War, was sold after Cornelius Lau's death. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, you know, the, ha- the house goes to other uh, owners after Lau's death, uh, and all mm-hmm. of them rather prominent, wealthy people uh, in the area. Uh, it's owned by the Poole family, you know, uh, in the late 18th, early 19th century. Uh, and, and the pools are, um, again, they're, they're merchants um, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, landowners. Um, so, you know, the house is always, uh, you know, just because of its its size and its scale. You know, the folks that have occupied it over the years of um, after the Laos have, have come from a wealthy background. After hundreds of years of use by four wealthy families, the Lao house fell into disrepair and was put up for sale. Middlesex County was motivated to buy the house because it was one of the few examples of 18th century life remaining in the area. It's last owned by the uh, the Strong family, probably, I think, maybe the 60s. And, and Marion Strong sells the house, I believe it's 1979, to Middlesex County, you know, to preserve the building and to establish a county uh, museum to help tell not only the house's history, but the you know the history of the county as well through rotating exhibits because of the bicentennial there is this renewed interest in american history but mm. at a local level um i mean that's one thing that comes out of the bicentennial is uh you know sort of um looking at your your the history that's in your communities and you know because middlesex county has such a connection to you know it's it's an old you know, one of the oldest counties in the state with mm-hmm. tremendous connections to the Revolutionary War. Like, it's, you know, no surprise that there were, you know, there's many sites, mm-hmm. you know, that speak to this early colonial history with ties to the American Revolution. And so, you know, uh, the, the, the Lyle House certainly embodied all of that. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when it came up for sale, uh, you know, there were these interests to preserve it and make it into a public, you know, a public site. Middlesex County used various methods to uncover the Lau House's original features and prepare the house for visitors who want to experience a wealthy 18th century home. Historian Mark Nonestide explained why the Lau House is such a valuable historical piece and described the extensive restoration process. In the mid-1990s, the house received a grant from the New Jersey Historic Trust uh, for restoration, which included the... Rehaul of the mechanical systems and um, uh, uh, the paint analysis, determining some of the original colors and you know restoring some of the original features. Uh, there was archaeology work that also took place. You know, it was these various components of archaeology, of, of the paint analysis, of um, making sure the building was you know had up to date fire suppression, heating and air conditioning, that it was structurally sound. 
you know, mm-hmm. to support the the weight of exhibits and people in the spaces, um, and you know, to restore the walls and, and the, the historic features. These efforts to restore the house and highlight its historical features improve the building's ability to present an image of 18th century life to the visitor. The Lau House has come to represent not just the Laos, but all the families it housed after the Lau family. Visiting the Lau House is like standing at an intersection of Middlesex County history. The the house itself is a tangible object from the past. You know, you can walk through the same space that the Lau family walked through. You can make that connection to to history in, in a very real way. And, you know, that's the, you know, as many historians you know, we'll say, I mean, that, that's one of the poetries of, of the poetry of history is this, uh, you know, this connection to our past, to the people that were here before us uh, mm-hmm. in a structure like the ha- Lau House does that, you know, again, in a, in a real, uh, in a real, in a real way, making these real connections by, uh, you know, by, again, walking through that, that space. Um, you can stand, you know, where Laos stood, and look down at the Raritan Landing community. Um, you know, the, the, the buildings are gone today. Uh, we know about it through archaeology, but, you know, that same sort of uh, viewpoint is, uh, is still there. Um, the, uh, you know, you can turn and face the house and, and look at it, you know, much like Lau did, and again, walk through the spaces and, you know, it's 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 just it's a it's a tangible link to our history. The Middlesex County Division of History and Historic Preservation wants the public to participate in the gathering of new resources from the past, such as excavated artifacts. In 2021, Middlesex County initiated the 26th investigation of Raritan Landing. This took place on the grounds of the Lau House. This was part of the county's public archaeology project, and prior to the dig, there were others. There was an excavation at the former site of Thomas Edison's home at his Menlo Park laboratory. Another example of a public archaeology project was an 18th century pastor's house and a 17th century site in Piscataway. Middlesex County hired an archaeologist to use ground-penetrating radar and magnetometry to scan the ground before archaeologists dug. My name is Tim Horsley. I'm managing director of Horsley Archaeological Prospection. So I conduct these non-invasive techniques for a whole range of kind of archaeological projects. In April 2021, I stood with Tim Horsley on the grounds of the Lau House. We talked about ground-penetrating radar first. His unit was equipped with both a transmitter and receiver. The GPR unit was capable of showing every place there was a change in the soil materials or some other material in the ground. He also presented some possibilities the GPR unit could pick up. We can make a guess here. I mean, we've got a we've got a significant domestic <laughs> structure right behind mm-hmm. us, so we know that that associated this, we're going to have some outbuildings. We're likely to have, or well, we know there's a well over here, but there may have been an earlier well. We can expect privies. Um, there may be cut features like cellars and other other pits for for different reasons. Um, may have. Some of those buildings may have had stone foundations. We can expect walls out here. We also expect probably garden features. I mean, that can be Mm. earlier paths. uh, There can be flower beds, things like that. And we can detect, depending on the ground conditions here and, you know, how much disturbance there's been before and more likely 
sense <laughs> the, the, the earliest habitation here, um, we might be able to pick up some of those subtle features, like, like even like flower beds. To refresh your memory, I asked him to compare ground-penetrating radar and magnetometry. The ground-penetrating radar is using this, these pulses of electromagnetic energy. It's, a, it's an active method. It's sending something out. The magnetometer that I'm using, is, it's a passive instrument, so that means mm. it's just measuring the, the ambient uh, Earth's magnetic field. Mm. If we have a compass and I hold it out, it points to the north. Um, if it was a very good compass and I can turn it on its side, it would also point down because at this mm. attitude, the, the Earth's magnetic field is coming into the ground. The magnetometer I have is measuring the, the intensity of the vertical component of that field. So what, how strong is the magnetic field that's coming directly down into the ground at this position? So yeah, it's not, not emitting anything. Um, we're literally just measuring the strength of the magnetic field here. And we can see different types of features with that. So with the, the ground penetrating radar, anything that's any, anything that's different from the, the natural soil is going to give us a reflection, mm. usually. <laughs> Sometimes it can, be, it can be quite different. With a magnetometer, anything that's distorting the Earth's magnetic field, mm. we can detect. A good example is a brick. Part of the process of making a brick is by firing it in a kiln. And if a brick was beneath the surface of the Lau House property, the magnetometer could detect any brick because, as Tim said, each brick is like a miniature bomb magnet. And bricks all have a north end and a south end. And this isn't the first time he has worked for the county. We needed a non-invasive method to search on a small piece of property. Ground-penetrating radar got the job done. Now, listen closely. So in that instance, I was invited out to the Washington Monumental Cemetery, um, really, I think, responding to a question about one corner of the cemetery. It's, a lot of the rest of that burial ground is, is filled with with stone, grave markers, some of them quite ornate, quite elaborate. And then there's this one corner that's almost completely empty. And um, local, uh, I don't want to say folklore or legend, but that the, 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 the yeah, we'll call it legend, <laughs> sort of passed down um, the story that this corner of the cemetery was used for victims of this Spanish flu pandemic. Um, but but nobody knew for certain that there were no records that absolutely said this. So there was this big question, is this, is this apparently or relatively empty area of the cemetery actually empty or are there burials there? So it's a, a, a classic example for a, something like a GPR survey where I can go in and conduct a survey and, and see, well, are, are there indications of burials? Is there any evidence for grave shafts, maybe inhumations? Sometimes I might see evidence for um, stones and markers that have fallen and are buried just below the surface. So this is an, an area of, I think, about a quarter of an acre. Um, so I was out there for a day. I began setting out my grid uh, alongside the known graves, started walking up and down every, every 25 centimeters. I mean, we take very, very closely spaced. Um, transects when looking for things like burials, because the, you'll never see anything smaller than the than the interval between your transects. So you have to have a relatively close uh, spacing. And yep, just start walking up and down, like pushing this little this little silent lawnmower 
up and down these transects. And I was seeing almost straight away as I was doing this, I, I, I can see on the computer screen in front of me a picture of the profile as I collect it. So it gives me a sense of what's there, but it's really only afterwards when I download the data and process it that I can visualize how all of these transects look um, side by side. Um, but I was seeing immediately that there was a reflection, then another reflection, then another reflection as I was pushing the GPR along, and that it was quite obviously um, picking up burials. And that's exactly what we saw when I downloaded the data after the fact. Uh, there's, there's these neat rows of, of burials, you know, just row upon row, uh, which, yeah, it's quite amazing. <laughs> quite amazing to get an image like that when there's maybe, you know, a dozen a dozen um, grave markers on the surface, and I counted somewhere around 300 to 400 burials, I think. The excavation of, really, the backyard of the Lau House occurred on Saturday, September 26th, and Sunday the 27th, 2021. This was seven months after the ground-penetrating radar and the magnetometry was conducted by Tim Horsley. The principal investigator was Michael Gall. My name is Michael Gall. Um, I went to school at Monmouth University, where I uh, have a bachelor's degree in history and anthropology, and then I went back to Monmouth, and I have a master's degree in American history. Uh, and during my time at Monmouth, I worked in what's called the cultural resource management industry, mm-hmm. which is composed of archaeologists and architectural historians. Um, and I've been doing archaeology professionally since about 1998, um, and I love every minute of it because it's always something new. Um, But I'm also the acting president of the Archaeological Society of New Jersey, Mm -hmm. and I work for a cultural resource management firm uh, in Cranberry, and they're called Richard Grubb and Associates, and I've been with them for, for just over 20 years. Just like the dig in 1980, this dig had questions to answer. Number one, what is the size and shape of the former outbuilding that stood in the yard area near the Lau House? Number two, what is the age and historic function of the outbuilding? Number three, do the building remains and the deposits within the footprint of the building contain integrity that constitute a contributing resource under a type of criterion of the New Jersey Register of Historic Places for the existing historic property? Number four, does the building shed light on the former Revolutionary War military presence on the property during the British occupation of Raritan Landing? Number five, Does the building and associated deposits provide insight into the lifeways of the Dutch-American Lao family, and more particularly, their Dutch cultural ancestry and mercantile activities during the 18th century, and their political allegiances during the Revolutionary War era? The sixth and last question had to do with the owner of the Lao house and the property years after Cornelius' death. Did the artifacts uncovered give any insight into a family's occupation of the property during the late 18th to late 19th century? To sum up, the study was conducted to see if any artifacts could educate us on the everyday life of an 18th century merchant at Raritan Landing. And another archaeologist who assisted with the dig was David Mudge. My name is David Mudge. Uh, I used to work as an archaeologist for the Department of Transportation. Uh, retired a couple years ago. I've been a member of the Archaeological Society of New Jersey for 40 years, and um, I come out here to help. Uh, right now, I've got a bunch of stuff here to uh, map uh, the testing area. So at the end of the day, they'll know where they did all their testing, and mm-hmm. they'll have a usable map. 
to, to reference, you know, in the future. Another volunteer archaeologist who spoke to us was Lauren Lembo. I am a registered professional archaeologist. Cool. Um, I have a master's in education from Central Michigan University and a master's in anthropology for Monmouth. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been a professional archaeologist for 10 years. Um, presently, I actually work at the Hunterdon County Cultural and Heritage Commission, but mm -hmm. I've been um, a board member for the Archaeological Society of New Jersey for oh. a while now. We wanted to know what Lauren thought of allowing the public to get close to the excavation even having an opportunity to dig themselves. A lot of times you see um, archaeology happening behind like sort of closed doors and these research papers that unfortunately don't always make their way to the public. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's why something like this is so valuable because it's giving people within the community an opportunity to learn about the history that is right around them mm -hmm. um, and to have access to that instead of being cut off, you know, just because they're not, you know, an academic archaeologist. They should still yeah. be able to have access to, you know, the history of the land that they're on. We also asked her how she became interested in archaeology. So I always loved history. Um, I think early on had a misconception that if it was something that you wanted to get into that you had to like travel the world to do it. Mm -hmm. um, one of my other passions was art. So I actually went to school for my bachelor's in studio art and was an art teacher for a while. Mm -hmm. um, but then things kind of happened. We had this like economic situation and, and a lot of budget cuts for cutting out the arts from schools. Mm -hmm. And I was still young. So I was like, you know what? I, I've always like loved archaeology and history. I would love to get into it. So then I started um, volunteering for the Archaeological Society. And that was probably in like 2000, 2007, 2008. And then um, from there, decided that I really loved it and, and did a career change and started working in cultural resource management and then went on to get a couple master's degrees in it. In addition to participating in excavations in the Garden State, she's also dug as far north as Vermont, as far west as Ohio, and as far south as Puerto Rico. Getting back to the Lau House dig, Miss Lembo commented on what was found. I've heard that people found ceramics and stuff. Yeah, ceramics. So we found um, some pearlware. We mm -hmm. found some creamware. We found some um, pieces of glass, including not just bottle glass, but window glass. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a little bit of bone. Cool. And I know that um, the team working on the other unit actually found sort of like a copper alloy decorative sort of metal piece that we're not really sure what it what it would have belonged to as of yet. A lot of the archaeologists excavating at the Lau House are members of the ASNJ. We asked Ms. Lembo to tell us about the organization. The Archaeological Society of New Jersey, or ASNJ, I'll just say ASNJ for mm -hmm. short, um, was founded in 1931 and the main goal is to really just um, you know, preserve New Jersey as an archaeology and history, but also be able to share it with the public and share it with the members. So anyone can be a member of the ASNJ, and what a membership does is it gives people um, four quarterly newsletters that sort of mention different activities and events that the ASNJ are doing. Um, there's usually educational articles in there. And then there's also a bulletin that comes out annually that has a bunch of different local research papers in it. And then it also gives you access to be able to participate in any excavations that are going on that the ASNJ hosts. But otherwise, even non-members can still listen to um, 
speaker series because during the pandemic, the ASMJ, in, in order to not just completely stop what they were doing, yeah. decided to move to a virtual platform. So there's a YouTube channel mm -hmm. that has um, periodic special guest speakers mm -hmm. about some aspect of archaeology or history in the state. And those get recorded and anyone can see those for free. Mm -hmm. um, same with a lot of the public archaeology days, like they're there, even though you have to be a member to actually physically excavate, yeah. um, you know, a member from the public can certainly come and ask questions and, and, and learn a little bit more, yeah, and observe. The next person Emma spoke with was Danielle Cathcart. I've done archaeology for going on 13 years. Cool. Um, if, and then I'm including my field school, which I completed in 2007. So. <laughs> I would consider myself an archaeologist starting then, I suppose, even though I was in training. Okay. Although you could argue that you're always in training. I mean, every site is different, and uh, you always find new things and new things to learn. She began her career in Virginia, which is where she completed her undergrad and then moved to New England to complete graduate school at UMass Boston. After working for a cultural resource management firm in Massachusetts, she joined Richard Grubb & Associates in New Jersey. The differences really come down to methodology. Um, so in the South, mm -hmm. we may do preliminary surveys that um, consist of round shovel tests. Mm -hmm. um, actually, that's what New Jersey does. But up North in New England, they'll do preliminary surveys of shovel tests that are squares. <laughs> so it's some methodological differences, but altogether we're seeing similar artifacts, especially with the historic period artifacts. Mm -hmm. Um, but in New Jersey, there are some New Jersey-specific material types mm -hmm. that Native Americans used that were only that were local to New Jersey. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that was a difference I had to learn, um, the different types of lithic materials that were available down here. Okay. Um, in New Jersey, there's a lot, I would say, a lot more Revolutionary War era stuff that's big in this, yeah. in this neighborhood, whereas up north, we're dealing with more colonial, but also Civil War. Um, types okay. of things but also like the preservation conditions are different in New England um, sometimes you won't get the kinds of sites or artifacts preserved unless it's a very special condition the last person Emma Young spoke to was Jacqueline Pillsbury I'm Jacqueline Pillsbury I am a volunteer archaeologist mm -hmm. um, Many years ago, when I was in college, I went to the college, uh, to Trenton State College, now the College of New Jersey, and they have this historic house on the property called the William Green Farmhouse. I think now they're calling it the William Green Plantation. And um, I had a semester class in digging and thought, oh, this was fun, mm -hmm. and I enjoyed it, and didn't do anything about that for many years. And mm -hmm. then every so often I hear about one of these dig sites where they're asking for volunteers and I come out and I dig for a few hours and have a good time and let it be. Uh, in 2019, I took that further and spent four and a half weeks in Israel on a dig site and learned more about the behind the scenes, how to wash pottery, label mm. artifacts, figure out is it a rock or is it a, something important. Ms. Pillsbury heard about the ASNJ at an event that features various nonprofits and government agencies, businesses that preserve the history of New Jersey. I heard about them at the Spirit of the Jersey's History Fair a couple of years ago. They had a, a booth, a table, and I'm like, wow, that sounds neat. So next weekend we're going to do a mm -hmm. dig up in uh, it was like somebody's, it was some house. After two days of digging, 
the ASNJ processed, cleaned, and analyzed all that was found, over 1,100 artifacts from the 1700s through the 1900s. What did they offer? Did this public archaeology project uncover historic features detected by Tim Horsley's ground-penetrating radar and magnetometry? Were these anomalies historic structures associated with the use of the Cornelius Lau House? Unfortunately, no. As a result of the background research conducted at various repositories and the artifacts uncovered, most of the questions could not be answered. According to the report, no foundation remains were discovered. There were no military artifacts identified either. Why is that? This was not the first archaeological investigation of the Lau House. There were five prior to this, between 1982 and 1996. During one of those digs, there was evidence of military uniforms discovered. The Archaeological Society and Mike Gall stated in the report that future excavations south of the excavation units could yield more deposits. The report also stated this study was focused on the understanding of the Lau House property, its use, and former occupants, whomever they were. The artifacts found in the excavation units were very close to the dividing line between Peter Lau's property and Cornelius Lau's property. It was difficult to determine if the artifacts are associated with Cornelius Lau, Catherine Lau, or by later owner John Poole Jr., or if they are related to Peter Lau and other tenants. A lot was found, a lot more can be found, and Middlesex County's residents have more teaching tools from the past. Is there anything left to discover about Raritan Landing? One of the last questions presented to Dr. Veit was, what other topics are worth exploring? One other thing that I think would be uh, worth exploring uh, would be the lives of uh, African-American residents of Raritan Landing, both uh, during the colonial period and then, and then afterwards in, in the 19th century, um, because uh, their lives, their experiences um, have uh, not seen, you know, sort of sufficient historical study. Their stories remain hidden, in some cases, frankly, erased, um, and are stories that are important to our understanding uh, of who we are as, as, as a nation. And, and archaeology can be a really important source of new information there. So those are just some ideas for the future. A possible African-American community at Raritan Landing was being researched and investigated during the spring of 2023. That's the 27th investigation of Raritan Landing. More than two dozen excavations of the Raritan Landing Port community were conducted between 1977 and 2008. Over 10 million artifacts were collected. Years after the 2008 dig, full and part-time employees, interns, consultants, and archaeologists participated in one or a few of the landing digs, worked together to create an exhibit. Mark Donestide, the official historian for Middlesex County, was the curator. Dr. Rebecca Yeaman was the guest curator. It opened at the Runyon House at East Jersey Old Town Village. The exhibit covered the history of the long-lost pork community, and Cornelius Vermeule's research and writing, and African Americans at the landing. The exhibit featured a few primary documents, and of course the artifacts, everything from bar shot discovered by David Zamoda to a ceramic doll's head from the early 1800s. Thank you very much for listening. 
Our deepest appreciation to those who took time to answer our questions. Dr. Richard Veit, Dr. Rebecca Yeaman, Richard Porter, Dr. Joel Grossman, Claire Garland, Karel Hall, and David Zamoda. We also want to express our gratitude to the Archaeological Society of New Jersey, especially Mike Gall, David Mudge, Lauren Lembo, Danielle Cathcart, and Jacqueline Pillsbury. This podcast would not be possible without the following people. First, Middlesex County Commissioner Kenneth Armwood. He inspired us to try something that had never been done by a county office. The production of this podcast is the acceptance of that challenge. Uncovering Raritan Landing is dedicated to his memory. Thank you also to Lindsay Urban, the director of the Arts Institute of Middlesex County. Thank you also to Mark Nonestide, the director of the Division of History and Historic Preservation and the official Middlesex County historian. Thank you also to Mitchell Kevitt, our technical advisor. He was our associate producer. He also interviewed experts, wrote episodes, and also offered his honest opinion. Thank you also to Emma Young. She was a writer. She also interviewed experts and archaeologists during the Lauhouse dig. Research was done by Louis Bartolomeo. And thank you also to intern Colin Dougherty. He provided background research. And as of this recording, the exhibit at the Runyon House on Raritan Landing is at East Jersey Old Town Village. Admission is still free. The Runyon House is open Wednesday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., Saturdays and Sundays, 12 p.m. to 4 p.m. You can also read Dr. Rebecca Yeaman's book, Rediscovering Raritan Landing, for free. Call us for more information at 732-745-3030.